today we're in a series that we started two weeks ago. It's called Lost Essentials Part 3. And it's all about the supernatural storyline in the Bible. The supernatural storyline in the Bible. It's so easy to read the Bible and kind of miss all of that. And as you miss that, you actually miss the depth that is there in, in the Word of God. And you don't really grasp everything that God wants to say to you through the Word if you miss out on that supernatural storyline. And the question I want to answer today is, why is there evil in the world? Why, um, why do we see a world, you know, if, if God is perfect, if God loves us, if he truly loves us, if he uh, foreknew that humans would rebel against him, why did he give him, why did he give him a free will? Why, why is the world so messed up with, you know, all the wars and, um, you know, the natural disasters and, and the inequality and, and injustice, everything that's going on right here around us? Why is all of that happening? It's a great question, and I'll try to get into that just briefly. I can't go in too much depth because I only have like 33 minutes or so, but I want to do my best trying to explain it to you today. And... Um, we uh, saw two weeks ago that, um, that there's actually there's a spiritual world hap- uh, around us and uh, that there's this word called Elohim, which, uh, which are basically, uh, if you translate it from Hebrew to, uh, to English, it will be the gods, with, uh, with, um, not with capital G, obviously. There's multiple uh, spiritual beings out there. And uh, we saw that two weeks ago. And then last week, uh, Pastor John Wyatt from, uh, from, from Jacksonville, Florida, he spoke about uh, the fact that we as humans were not only created in the image of God, but a better way to actually put it in the English is that we're imagers of God. How many of you enjoyed the message last week? It was great, huh? It was awesome. And, um, and if God has free will, because God has free will, right? If God has free will, then if we're created to be his imagers, then we're supposed to have free will as well. Because whatever he is, then we should be a reflection of that. So if we're created in his image, if we're imagers of God, we're, we're supposed to have free will. And it's not only true for um, God's human family for Adam and Eve and us as their descendants, but also for his spiritual family because God has a spiritual family as well. You know, the Elohim that I talked about earlier. So the evil in the world is not God's fault. It is actually the fault of his imagers because they had the freedom to be either loyal to him or to, to intentionally rebel against him. So Let's stop blaming God for all the disaster that's happening in the world. I think that's a good place to start this morning. And, and as we do that, you know, we can learn so much about him, about God's character, and, and, and really make a fresh start with him as well. So let's pray right now. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your presence is here in this place, that this is sacred space, that you chose to dwell here among us, Lord. Father, it's so special to know that a king is in our midst, Lord. The king of kings is in our midst here in this place, that where two or three are gathered in your name, there you are in the midst of them, Jesus says, and it's it's real. And Father, give us spiritual eyes and let us experience your presence in our midst today as as we open your word, as we let you speak to us through your word this morning. God, we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen and amen. So let's go back this morning. Let's go back to the book of Genesis. In in this case, to Genesis chapter 3. And if you have your Bible with you, I want to encourage you to look it up. And Yahweh, which is basically the personal name of God, 
and the, the, the Jews wouldn't pronounce his name. They, they, would, they would refer to him as Adonai or as, as the Lord, as you translate that. But there's actually four Hebrew letters in the Hebrew, uh, and, and that basically says, if you, it basically says Yahweh. So that's the name of our, of our God, Yahweh. So he lived in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was this perfect place that God created for humankind. And, and um, it, it was a place where Adam and Eve were supposed to live. But not only Adam and Eve were supposed to live there, also his divine family was supposed to live there in this place. It, Eden was the place where both his human and his heavenly families were combined together. They lived there together. Why do I say that? It's very clear in the text. Everything I'm going to say to you is, is based on, 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 on a lot of Hebrew that maybe sometimes the English translations or the Dutch translations kind of cover up. But when you go back to the Hebrew, you actually see this stuff there. It's all there in the text. So, um, so why do I say it that, that Eden was the place where not only God himself, where Yahweh lived, and not only Adam and Eve lived, but also his, um, his, his, his divine family? It's... You can see it when in chapter 3 there's the serpent that suddenly appears. And in Hebrew, uh, the serpent, uh, the name for serpent is Nachash. And, um, and he invites Adam and Eve to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, um, and he, got, he, he was there in the garden already before, um, before he um, invited Adam and Eve to, to take part of that fruit. He was already there. And in the past, I've taught you, and I want to apologize for that. I taught you that, um, that, um, that, that Satan, which is basically the serpent, was kicked out of heaven because of some kind of divine rebellion that happened in, in, in time past before the story of the Garden of Eden. And that's why he was there in the Garden of Eden. Looking at the Hebrew text, I just don't see a support for that anymore. Um, I honestly believe that based on a, on a solid reading of the, of the Hebrew that, um, that the serpent was already there before he rebelled. He was already there in the garden before he rebelled. He was just one of the Elohim of the gods with small g. He was, he was one of the members of the divine council, a, a member of God's heavenly family, and he lived there together with Yahweh and Adam and Eve in the garden. Two weeks ago, I explained to you what Elohim means. And Elohim means it's a, it is an inhabitant of the spiritual world. The word is used for Yahweh as an inhabitant of the spiritual world. The name is also used for, for the Shadim, which are like demons in the Old Testament. The word is also used for, um, for angels. The word is used for, for the divine council, for the, for the, um, the gods that, that basically surround the Lord, surround Yahweh. It's, it's a generic term to speak, that speaks about every um, spiritual being that doesn't have its home on, on the earth, but has its home in heaven. That's what Elohim means. And God decided for Adam and Eve to join the family business and turn the whole earth into a global Eden. You know, there was this limited space there that God kind of created for them, for Adam and Eve. And he said, hey, you guys live there. You enjoy this. And, and, and by the way, I want you to extend it. I want, to, I want you to have dominion over the whole earth. I want you to ex expand Eden over the whole earth. That was God's initial assignment to Adam and Eve. 
So um, the problem was that the serpent, which, which we now know as, as Satan, as, as Lucifer, or, you know, there's different terms, the devil, he was there in the garden, and he had rebellion in his heart, and he didn't want Adam and Eve to be there because of their special position, their special role, their special relationship they had with, with Yahweh. And he put himself in the place of God there. You can see this happening in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 13 and 14. I want to read it to you. It says this, You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly. Now that is the assembly of the gods. That's the place where, where people in those days, they thought the, the, the gods lived on mountains or in gardens. And you'll see more of that in just a moment. I'll sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. So this, this figure here in Isaiah chapter 14, he basically elevates himself to, to the same level or even a higher level than Yahweh. And that was a huge problem that was going on right here. He wanted to see himself as God. He kind of enjoyed the worship of other spiritual beings as well as human beings. And then in... Um, in another passage in Jeremiah chapter, oh, sorry, in Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 12 through 16, you see something similar. You see another description of what happened here in Isaiah 14. It says this, you were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and exquisite in beauty. You were in Eden, very interesting, the garden of God, right? It's the garden of Eden. Your clothing was adorned with every precious stone and beautifully crafted for you and set in the finest gold. They were given to you on the day you were created. I ordained and anointed you as the mighty angelic guardian. You had access to the holy mountain of God. Remember? Gardens, mountains, the places where the gods live, but also a place where Yahweh lives. And walked among the stones of fire. You were blameless in all you did. So, so this, this angelic being here, he was blameless. There was a moment where he didn't rebel against God. And he lived in Eden. That's what it says here, clearly. You were blameless in all you did from the day you were created until the day evil was found in you. So one day he rebelled against God. Your rich commerce led, to, led you to violence and you sinned. So I banished you in disgrace from the mountain of God. Basically, he got booted from the mountain of God by Yahweh. Isaiah 14, verse 12 says that the serpent was cut down to the ground. Now, what is the ground? The ground is the earth. And in fact, if you go back to the Hebrew, it speaks about the place under the earth, Sheol, or, or Hades, the place where death reigns, where life is not everlasting. This is where you see the um, Nachash, the serpent, this, this angelic being, this, this, this God with small g. You see him become the Lord of the dead, the dead, and he's now the one who rules over everyone who's mortal. So in order for us to have eternal life, in order for us to, to live in a new Eden, which God wants to bring, and that's his plan from, from, from eternity past to eternity 
in the future, he wants to restore Eden. God wants to bring Eden back on this earth. He wants us to be there. But we need to be redeemed. A price has to be paid for us so that we could have that eternal life with God in Eden. We all know that Jesus paid the price for us, right? Anyway, Satan, the serpent, he pulled humans along in his rebellion. And the result was a series of curses. You see this in Genesis 3, verse 14 and 15. Because you have done this, you are cursed. And this is God speaking to the serpent. More than all animals, domestic and wild, you will crawl in your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And it will cause hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. Interesting passage. This is a messianic prophecy of the woman's offspring. Of course, Eve's offspring is humanity in the first place. She's the mother of all the living, but ultimately, the offspring of Eve was Jesus. The serpent's offspring is something else. It's basically anyone who stands against God's plan, just like him. Think of Cain who killed his brother Abel. And you see um, John, the apostle, refer to that in 1 John 3.12. You see that the Jewish religious leaders in Jesus' day were uh, standing against God's plan. This is a wake-up call, I think, for, for people like myself as a religious leader, as a, as a faith leader. If you're not careful, you stand against the plan of God and you're in the way of people actually um, receiving all that God has for them and stepping into the plan, the kingdom plan that God has for their lives. Wake up call. Also Judas was somebody who stood against the plan of God, Judas who betrayed Jesus. All this is found in either 1 John or in the Gospel of John. So John had, uh, had his clear on, his, uh, on the radar. So you see here in Genesis chapter 3, that there was a divine rebellion that had taken place. There was this, this one being who was rebellious against God, who set himself against the Lord. And you flip through the pages of the book of Genesis, and you, you, you end up in chapter 6 of Genesis. And you see that there's a second divine rebellion that takes place. And the result of this second divine rebellion is widespread evil and violence amongst, amongst humans. If you know your Bible, you know that chapter 6 of Genesis is the story of Noah and the flood of Noah. And God wiped away all the evil through uh, the flood. But it's, it says here in Genesis 6 verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the th thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Just imagine a world like that. I mean, our world is pretty bad, isn't it, today? with all the evil that's going on. But this is even worse. It's like every person, every single person you meet wants to kill you. Every single person that you, that, that you meet is, has something against you. That was the world, what it was like in, in the days of Noah. And God said, I'm done with it. I'm done with it. You see here in Genesis verse 6, chapter 6, verse 1 and 2 and verse 4, you, you see a description of what it was like and what the reason was why this rebellion and this evil entered into the world. I want to read that with you. Genesis 6, verse 1. 
and 2 and then verse 4. When men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. And verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. You read this and it's like, what does the Bible say here? Have you ever had, you ever read the Bible in such a way and you see something, it's like, it kind of blows your mind. You're like, I wish that wasn't in the Bible because I don't know how to explain it. How many ever had that? This is one of those passages, right? Nephilim? Sons of God? I mean, isn't there just only one son of God? Isn't Jesus the only son of God? You know, it's John 1.14 says that God gave his only son, right? English translations say, you know, he gave his only son or he gave his one and only son. But then you go back to the Greek and you see that, that the word used for only actually means something different than what Bible scholars have thought for hundreds of years. Just recently, some, some Greek scholars, they, they pointed out that the word, I think it's monogoneos or something like that. It, it's, it's the word behind only son. It's translated only. It actually means one of a kind. That his son is different than any other sons that God could have had. Very interesting. There's more, there's more proof to this point. I'm not going to get into that. That's a rabbit trail. It's going to take a lot of time to explain that, but... Jesus was the one-of-a-kind son of God. There were others. Check Genesis chapter 6. The sons of God. The sons of God. There's other sons and daughters of God, right? Who? You. Right. If Jesus is your Lord and Savior, if he's your big brother, you're sons and daughters of, of God as well. But this passage speaks about something else, right? It speaks about the sons of God. In fact, when you, when you go to the Hebrew here, it says, Bene Ha Elohim. This means what it says in the English, sons of God. These beings here, they were like angelic beings who sinned before the flood by having sex with human women. You, you, you see references to this in 2 Peter verse, uh, chapter 2, but also Jude, verse 5 and 6. They, and these, these beings, they're um, imprison, imprisoned under the earth for their rebellion. They're, they're like basically in hell. They're basically in, in Hades right now until the day of judgment. And they'll, they'll be judged in the future. So Genesis 6 speaks about Nephilim, speaks about sons of God. Why did the rebel in the way they rebelled, as we can see here in, in Genesis 6. There's two possible explanations here that, that seem very probable. I don't, I'm not fully sure which is the right answer to that, but I think they both have a, have a good point. The first one is this, that they wanted to help, quote-unquote, humanity by giving them divine knowledge and then rebelled against God. So they wanted to give them some special knowledge Special knowledge that only the gods knew, the, the sons of God knew, and that 
they couldn't know by themselves. Humans couldn't know by themselves, so they gave it to them. But, but then the, the sons of God, those Nephilim, they became rebellious against God. They, they exalted themselves against God, just like Satan did in chapter 3 of Genesis. The, other, the second explanation here is that um, they wanted to imitate God by creating their, their own imagers. They wanted to do the very same thing that God did. God said, let us make humankind in our own image. Let us make human imagers, those who represent God, who represent Yahweh. And they said, hey, if God can do it, if Yahweh can do it, let's, let's do the same thing. Let's just go to the earth. Let's have sex with women. And let's create our own imagers. Let's create something that is going to be as, as devious, as evil as we are. Let's destroy the world this way, by evil. And God had to deal with it. There's other sources outside of the Bible, um, like First Enoch. And when you look at sources like that, and the reason why I'm bringing this up is that um, actually First Peter and Jude refer to First Enoch um, in this. It's not inspired as the books you have in the Bible here, because the Bible is a library, right? It has several books in there. So First Enoch didn't didn't cut it. It wasn't of the quality as all the other books had. So they're like, no, we're not going to put it in there. But there is things we can learn from it because it's like it creates the cultural context of where the Bible was written in. So that's why I refer to it. But first, Enoch suggests that um, the demons we know in the stories of Jesus, that they're actually the spirits of dead Nephilim who were killed before the flood or during the flood. And they're looking for humans to be re-embodied. And that's what you see happen in the ministry of Jesus. You see that there's these evil spirits that take a hold of people, and he had to cast those demons out. So there's a reality there, and it's still true today. Descendants of the Nephilim, those giants, you can find them anywhere, uh, in many places in the Old Testament, under names like Anakim or Rephaim, or just simply giants. And every time... This is really interesting. We'll talk more about this in, further on in the series. But every time the Israelites had to, had to um, fight against a town or a village in the promised land, they, their job was to basically, God took them out of Egypt. He now led them to the land called Canaan. And he said to them, this is the promised land. I promise it to your forefathers. Now it's your turn to take possession of it. And every time they, they, um, then they, gather near a town or a, or a city or a village. And there are traces of those giant races in that village or in that town. God told them, you have to wipe it out fully. No mercy. Wipe out everything. Every human that's there, every, every other being that's there, even, even the animals. Don't take any of the spoil. Don't take any of the wealth from those towns or cities. Just deal with it that way. And I always fought. I always had a problem um, looking at the um, Old Testament, stories like this where whole cities and towns were wiped out. I'm like, is this really the same God of the Old Testament as the God of the New Testament who sent his son Jesus? I always knew that, you know, there's too much proof that those two uh, testaments actually belong together that I, that I didn't struggle with that so much that I actually, you know, um, put question marks behind my faith because that's how much, how much I trusted in, in the, the truthfulness of the Bible. But 
Those are, those are, those are valid questions we have. You know, why, why does God wipe out whole cities and whole towns? Good question. But there is a spiritual reason. There is a um, reason that has everything to do with the supernatural world that's going on there. Because those giant races, they took a hold. They controlled those cities. They controlled those towns. And if the Israelites wouldn't deal with it, if they would kind of leave it that way, oh, yeah, no, a giant here, uh, more or less, it doesn't matter, um, we'll be okay. If they looked at it like that, there would be a continual threat to them. Because the, the Nephilim and the giants and so on, they, they wanted to basically wipe out the Israelites. It's like a demonic force and demonic power that was living in, in Canaan, in the same land as the Israelites were living in. So they had to deal with it fully, completely. The problem was they didn't. So by the time David, King David gets there, before he was king, what's with the, one of the most well-known stories in the Old Testament? David and Goliath, right? And we think, oh, man, it's such an awesome story, you know, how, how this young little boy, you know, he uses his slingshot and, and he kills the giants. Let's defeat the giants in our life. Yeah. But there's something going on behind the scenes that is just evil that we have to See here in the text, there is a spiritual war going on. And, and this, this giant is not a, no, just a tall guy, a tall Dutch guy or something. This is a demonic, you know, half demon, half man kind of person that is standing there. That's why David had to deal with the Goliath. Nobody else dared to do it. It's funny how, how throughout the history of the Israelites, people don't dare to deal with the giants. I mean, that's what got them in trouble in the first place, why they had to wander in the desert for 40 years. And now you see here David killing Goliath, doing basically what, what the others were supposed to do hundreds of years before him. And then after he killed Goliath, there were still some of the brothers of Goliath there. And David's brothers ended up dealing with the brothers of Goliath. And from that moment onwards, you don't see any reference anymore in the Old Testament to, to the giants and to the Anakim and the Rephaim. This is so important for us to, to know, to get a real understanding of, of the Old Testament. That, you know, it does seem cruel that the Israelites had to wipe out whole cities and towns. But there was a very important reason why they had to. So don't feel mercy for those, um, those beings. So the first six chapters of the book of Genesis... They basically show to us that there are two divine, two major divine rebellions that took place. The serpent in Eden, and then second, the Nephilim before the flood of Noah. Now you wonder, why, is, why are you telling me all of this? This is kind of deep stuff. What difference does it make in my daily life? Good question. I don't know. I do know. Three things. I want to give you three things. Three take-homes. Start with the first one. God is not the, the cause of evil. He's not the author of evil. It's not his fault that this world is such a mess as it is today. God is not the author of evil. God is not some kind of twisted deity who, who predestines awful things or who needs horrible crimes to happen for his greater plan to work out for the world. He's not like that. God is a God of love. He cared so much about the Israelites that he told them to wipe out those cities because 
he knew the problems it would cause down the road. Also, you, you got to know within that that God is not mad at you. So many people live like God is mad at them. It's like they're afraid that God would kind of throw like a lightning bolt from heaven. Boom! You sinned, right? No, that's not God. That's not Yahweh. That's Zeus. Because God desperately wanted you and I to be his imager, to represent him on this earth. He had to give us free will. Because otherwise, we would not, we would not be like him. And because we have free will, we can choose to do good or we can choose to do evil. Sadly enough, humankind chose to do evil. But don't blame God for what we've, for the mess we made out of this. God is not the cause of evil. Second take home I want to give to you is that those intelligent spiritual powers are still active today. You know, this is not some kind of supernatural worldview that was just happening in the Old Testament and because we are Westerners and we can't grip our heads around spiritual warfare and all those things that, that suddenly those things don't exist anymore. No. It's still real if, if, whether we believe it or not. They're still active today. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 6, you see that Paul speaks about the principalities and powers and all these evil spiritual beings that are still active in the world today and we got to realize that those are there and there's a spiritual war going on around us and because there's a spiritual war going on around us we need to have discernment we need to know we need to we need to ask God you know when we're up against a problem in our lives you know many times it's just a natural situation that you're dealing with but sometimes there is a spiritual cause behind it and I believe that God is calling all of us in our maturing as, as Christ followers that, that we would have, we would understand if something has a spiritual root or not. That we would understand whether there's a spiritual power going on or not. We need to be more alert. It's interesting that, you know, I've been a pastor of this church for almost 13 years now. Long time. There have been many times that I wanted to stop doing this. It's takes too much energy, takes such a big toll, my family, marriage, whatever. But you know what? Only until recently, only since recently have I realized that there's actually a spiritual war going on that is trying to rip my wife and I apart, that is trying to cause us to be discouraged about leading this church. But it, we have to realize, we have to realize this for us to be effective in leading this church forward and to allowing you, helping you step into the amazing plan that God has for your life. But if we don't, if we don't discern what's going on spiritually, we're in trouble. Because there is a war going on around us. You don't have to be afraid of the war. Because with Jesus, you're more than conqueror. But it is going on around us. And we just got to be aware. Don't be tempted by your enemy. And that takes me to point number three, which is we need to choose alliance to Yahweh. Allegiance, sorry. 
We need to choose allegiance to Yahweh day in, day out to experience his protection. I told you a few weeks ago, I think two weeks ago or so, that there is no gray area in our faith. It's either black or white or hot or cold. There's no middle ground. There's no such thing as living with one foot in the kingdom of God and with another foot in the world. That doesn't exist. Biblically speaking, this is nonsense. The whole Bible speaks about that, that God is calling us to make a decision to choose loyalty to Jesus and nothing else, no other God. So when I speak about gods, when I speak about the Elohim, these are all lower spiritual beings and they don't deserve worship. In fact, they were all created. And we just got to ignore them in that way. There's only one God with capital G, Yahweh, who deserves our worship. And we need to choose him above everything else. There is no gray area. You know, 1 John 5, 19, uh, John says this, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Everything that you see around you, whether it's good or not, human, humanly speaking, if it's not inspired by Jesus, it's not good. It's that clear in the Bible. It's either you're on the Lord's side or you're on somebody else's side. And I don't want you to be on the, on the, on the somebody else's side. We got to learn to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross daily and to follow him. That's what Jesus said to us. Or, or, or Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added to you. That's the vision verse of this church. Seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will be added to you. Jesus is calling us for, to loyalty. He's calling us to choose, choose allegiance to him and him alone. And you know what? The Bible speaks clearly about this. You know, in the book of Revelation, uh, that, that we actually can overcome. We, when we remain loyal to the Lord in a world that's against us and against God, there's some amazing promises. And, you know, you don't have to do this by yourself. You don't have to do this alone. It's not like in your own power you have to stay loyal to the Lord. He gives you his spirit to live in you and to give you power, to give you strength, to, to stay, uh, stay alert and stay up and, and, and be victorious in this world that is against the Lord. Revelation 3.21 says this, To the one who is victorious, I will grant the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. I don't know about you, but I want to be on a throne. When, you know, when eternity comes, when, when we leave this earth here, earth here behind, you know, this old earth, and we, we step into the new earth and the new heaven and into the new Jerusalem, I want to be that person that sits on the throne with Jesus. Not only do I want to be on a throne with Jesus, I want all of you to be on a throne with Jesus. So I'm going to help you with this. It's coming a few months. And, and, you know, it's a little different maybe than what you're used to from Thousand Hills, but I, I just feel like God wants us to, to really be clear about this, to really leave, beside that, leave aside the gray areas and just to go after him with everything that is within us, to, to seek him and seek him alone. To the one who is victorious will inherit all things and I will be his God and he will be my son 
or daughter. Let that be the thing, the one thing that's said of thousand hills, Hilversum, Huizen, and everywhere else where God is going to lead us, plant churches. There's no toying anymore with sin. There's no, you know, gray areas anymore. Let's just make sure that we choose allegiance to Jesus and Jesus alone. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. God is here. The King is here in this place. How many of you believe that the King is here in this place? When the King is here, when, when King Willem Alexander sends you an invitation to a banquet, who are you to turn it down? Right? Now when the King of Kings is here in this place, who are we to turn down the invitation? There's an invitation that he sent out to all of us and to the people in your circle of friends and family and so on. He wants, to, wants us to reach them so that they hear that same invitation from the King. Go into the highways and byways, compel them to come in. The king and his kingdom. I believe that today, some multitudes are in the valley of decision. The Bible says there's a decision that all of us need to make. You could say, Yeah, I made the decision years ago to follow Jesus. Yeah, you're right. Probably, if you made the decision, obviously. But Jesus said, pick up your cross daily and follow me. I don't know where you are in your relationship with God, but yesterday as I was preparing for this message, I was like, there's something off in my in my spiritual life. It's like only a month ago we had revival here in this place. We had revival here at conference. How many of you were here for conference? It's like God's spirit moved in power and people were set free. I was set free from some things and you know, God just, you know, the, the weeks before that and, and conference here, you know, God just restored our marriage. It's like so many amazing things. I just felt God just in such a powerful way but I felt like, hey, Something's off. The Bible speaks about that our hearts can become callous. It's like there's, there's, in Dutch you would say there's ilt. You know, just like you have fingers. I don't know how to say that. It's callousness on your fingers because you work too hard or whatever. And I felt like the callousness I used to have before God broke into my life just this January and February it was, it was coming back, and I'm like, God, I don't want that. I want to I go back. I want, I, want to, I want to go back to my first love. I want Jesus to be number one in my life. I'm like, so I prayed to the Lord. My wife and I, we prayed. It's like the same powerful presence of the Lord just came into our room at home and came on my life again like I've experienced a couple of weeks before. But our human tendency, you know, I'm, I'm as human as you are. I may be on the platform right here. I may be called pastor, but I'm as human as you are. And I think we all struggle with moments like that in our own lives. We, we kind of drift away. We, 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 we do good things. You know, we plant churches like me. We lead churches. I mean, it's the work of God, right? But it's easy for for my spiritual work that I'm doing to actually take me away from my spiritual relationship with Jesus. 
If it can happen to me in my line of work, I'm pretty sure it can happen to you in your line of work. I want us to be humble enough, to be transparent enough that if that's going on in, in your life, that we that we're just not afraid to say to God, Lord, here I am. God, it's me. I walked away from you in my heart, but I want to go back. I want to experience you fully in my life. I just want to go back to my first love. I know there's many of us out here in this room that can relate to what I just shared with you. We all have that tendency. I believe that this morning, you know, as Jesus told us to pray, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. I believe that in these coming few moments as we're going to go back into worship, that his kingdom will invade this space. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Jesus is already here. However, there's a greater measure of his presence that we can all experience in our lives. And I need that. I believe you need it. So I want you to, as we pray, I want you to take inventory of your, inventory of your own life and just ask the Lord, where am I standing? Is there callousness in my own heart? Have I drifted away from my first love to Jesus? Or maybe you've never even placed your life in the hands of Jesus. Maybe you've never accepted him as your Lord and Savior. I know it's a, this morning could be a great opportunity for you to accept that. There's a moment of surrender that, that you know, when we surrender, when we, when we kneel down before the Lord, you know, I, I truly believe that, that when, we're, when we're on our face, when we're on our knees, there's no way we can fall from that position. It's the best place we can be in. Humbled, surrendered to Jesus and Jesus alone. I believe that as we take that step in these coming few moments, and we're going to open up the altars in just a few moments, and it gives an opportunity for you to kind of kneel down and just ask the Lord, God, take away the callousness in my own heart. God, heal me, restore me. Whatever's, whatever feels in the way of my relationship with you, I just want to put it aside and I want, to, I want to put you first. I want to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything else will be added to me. I don't, I don't want to focus on these other things anymore. I want to focus on you. There's an opportunity for you to do that in just a moment here at these altars. There's nothing magical about this place. But what I do know is that James says that when we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. There's, a, there's power in making a demonstration and making a decision and taking a step. And God wants to touch you. He wants to touch your life. He wants you to experience heaven. How I many of you want to experience heaven this morning? How many of you want to experience heaven? Come on, let's holler. Come on, you can be. Who's excited about experiencing heaven? Come on. So let's all stand to our feet right now. Let's, let's just pray. God, we come to you, Lord, right now. Just raise your hands to Jesus. Raise your hands to him right now as a sign of surrender. God, we just want to lift up our lives to you, God. And we just want to surrender to you, Lord. Father. We're just humans, and 
Even though we're called to be your imagers, Father, it's so easy for us to kind of drift away from our first love, from that intimate relationship that we have with you, God. And Lord, today we want to make a decision of surrender, of, of just reaching back to you, reaching out to you, Lord, like, like maybe what we've done before, maybe the, for the very first time. God, we want you to take center stage in our lives. God, we don't want to be on the throne of our lives anymore. We want Jesus to be on the throne of our lives. And God, we pr I pray, Lord, this morning over your people, God, that there will be healing this morning, that there will be deliverance this morning, that we, we don't care anymore what other people think. We don't care anymore uh, what's going on around us. We just care about you, Lord. We just want to put you first in our lives, Lord. God, help us to, to embrace everything that you, you're doing in our lives. Help us to, to jump into the river of God, Lord, that is right here, of, of his presence, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.